Hi, everybody, and welcome to SNL After Party, December 2018, in review for season 44 of Saturday Night Live. My name is Mike Bloom, here in one of many off weeks between episodes of SNL as we move away from 2018 and begin anew in 2019 with some SNL episodes. We're bringing you some content in the meantime to talk about the month that was in Saturday Night Live. Of course, I am not alone. I am bringing this guy around from the back of the tree back to the front where he should be, Mario Lanza. Mario, how are you? I am doing great. It's uh, always good to hear your grating voice, Mike Bloom. So nice to nice to be here. Absolutely. Look, you know what? I, I produce shredded cheese, so I'm happy to have a I'm happy to have a grating voice. It has its uses. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I know it's it's been a long time since we've done one of these recaps, so it's always good when Mike and I get to catch up and talk again and get the old dynamic back. So yeah, I'm very excited to talk about some exciting episodes that are not very exciting. How about that? <laughs> yeah, and actually for this podcast, Mario and I actually wrote each other's notes and we're going to read them aloud on the podcast. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> I got to do all Hanukkah shtick. I got to do all this, the Jewish cat skills jokes that Mike does. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, 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 working at Borscht Belt is tougher than you may think. <laughs> Uh, but we'll, we're going to talk about these past few episodes hosted by Claire Foy, Jason Momoa, and Matt Damon. But at the large, Mario, you, you sort of just uh, mentioned your general thoughts about them. But how did you think SNL season 44 finished off its first half here? Uh, that's kind of an open-ended question because I think it finished off strong with one good episode. The Matt Damon one seems to be very well received. But overall, I think it pretty much limped to the end of the year. And I think we're pretty much to the point, like after nine, it was at nine or 12 episodes. I forget how far in now, but well, yeah, we're, we are, we are officially nine episodes and assuming a 21 episode season, we're not halfway through, but I feel like yeah. from a calendar perspective, we basically are. Okay. Yeah. I was saying by this point, you know what the season's going to be. So it, it, it is like, there's not really going to be too many surprises through the rest of the year. And I think at this point you can pretty much say it's going to be a, I mean, this is a, a subjective opinion, but I think it's going to be a below average to average at best season. I don't think we're going to have anything exciting this year. I personally think out of the nine episodes, there's only been three strong ones, and I don't think that's a very good ratio for SNL. I think the uh, Seth Meyers, the Matt Damon, and the Leave Schreiber were all pretty strong episodes, but three out of nine I don't think is especially strong, and I'm not especially hopeful for where the season is going to go at this point. How about you? So I will say I'll, I'll take that point, but I'll also sort of remind you that at this time last year, uh, we ended on a down note as opposed to an up note with Kevin Hart hosting one of the worst episodes of the season, in my opinion. And I think now he was, should be praying that that's the the worst sort of uh, associative memories that we have with him now is, is from that incident. But that first half of season 43 was rough. That's where they were still sort of recovering from the Schneider and Kelly leaving as head writers. So I still have a bit of faith that we can come back in 2019 a bit renewed, especially the way that we ended that being said, uh, you know, with these past three episodes, the Claire Foy episode, uh, we were hoping after the Steve Carell one that we were going to take a bit of a step up. I feel like we did. There were maybe one or two sketches that I, I enjoyed at least more than the Steve Carell episode overall, but it was not a big step. There were, for some reason, and I, I think I remember tweeting this out, there were, there were just a lot of problems with sketch length. There were, mm -hmm. Between like the cold open and, you know, the morning Joe, neither sketches of which I don't think we're going to talk about, just felt like I had this mentality of like, they're still going? Why? Yeah. <laughs> why? Why? Like, end the sketch. I know you have problems with endings, but like, just end it somewhere. So have an anvil fall on somebody. Do like an Monty Python type of style uh, of an ending. Have someone come in and declare the sketch is too boring. I don't know. It just seemed like there were a lot of sketches that really dragged out for no discernible reason. I can't figure out if... 
Claire Foy was just not that inspired of an actress to write about, especially compared to the other two hosts, or if, you know, the material just wasn't there, but it didn't really connect. Jason Momoa, initially in watching it, I was pretty lukewarm on. I thought he was an extremely capable host. I thought his charisma and his energy oozed out of that screen and i think actually uh buoyed a lot of the sketches from his episode which might not have ordinarily worked with a lesser actor or a lesser performer playing his roles but actually looking back we're gonna get into some of these i actually liked more sketch by sketch of this episode than i initially thought uh so revisiting it really helped but I'm in complete agreement with you about the Matt Damon episode. It's awesome that they just brought him in. He's not promoting anything. It's just because he's freaking Matt Damon. I can't believe it's been so long since he hosted because he seems like such a natural. And I don't know if it was like a culmination of the fact that they were printing in all these holiday sketches with the fact that Matt Damon is someone who just has a lot of fun. And you can put him in so many different roles that it just ended up becoming a really fun episode one of the high watermarks of the season in my opinion uh going back to my always true never wrong rankings <laughs> so i guess to finish up the first half of season 44 Liev schreiber is still number one to me <laughs> i put matt damon in as number two because i feel like there were some really solid things but nothing is going to probably beat the one-two punch of the house hunters with the the kyle and becca's brothers uh that was just fantastic overall i actually bumped jason momoa up to number three because while there there were some real clunkers, there are some really good ones that I want to talk about. Seth Meyers, number four. Jonah Hill, number five. Adam Driver, number six. Aquafina, number seven. I slotted in Claire Foy as second from the bottom, just barely because there were a couple sketches that we'll talk about that I really enjoyed. Above, unfortunately, the one who's occupying the bottom spot as we near 2019, Steve Carell. <laughs> so I would say this was a bit of an upward trajectory over the past three episodes, though to your point, We'll see what that, you know, how that translates into the new year. Yeah, one of the things that I noticed, like with the Matt Damon episode in particular, that episode was saved by having a very strong, charismatic, capable host. And what I've noticed is when when SNL is really firing well, it almost doesn't matter who the host is because the background actors and support and writing is so strong that they can work around anybody. And that I think the Lee Schreiber episode in particular would be the one about that. Like he wasn't an especially strong host. They just managed to work all this great stuff around him and it was fantastic. But like Matt Damon, it felt like he was in every sketch. He was the star. He saved everything. So it's like, even though that was a strong episode, I'm almost not willing to give SNL credit for that. I'm almost willing just to give him credit for that. And if you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's he wasn't a lot of sketches, uh, which is interesting compared to someone like Claire Foy, who like, I guess she was in a good amount, but I feel like Matt and Jason Momoa were in a lot. And I wonder if it's just this idea, again, of like, they're extremely capable hosts and maybe just you trust them to put more weight on their shoulders, knowing they can carry the load as opposed to a greater chance of a lesser host maybe dropping all that weight. Yeah. And and it just goes into my thing. And this is what I've been saying before. I always hate to bring this up because I don't want to be negative on this podcast. I just try to bring up the big picture and good things. But there's one thing that just absolutely glares at me when I watch the show this season in particular that I don't think the background, the cast overall isn't that strong. And that's it's kind of a, an issue. And they've been hiding. And I, I this is something I say before. They were hiding behind Keenan and Kate for so long and they just carried everything and those two have clearly taken a step back the season and you notice when they're not out in front it's very weak like i don't know how many people noticed that like uh mikey day is the lead the male lead in almost every single sketch mm -hmm. anything that's even remotely above average it'll either be the host or mikey day and that's all they have 
And I hate to say that, but that's it worries me just from an overall perspective of SNL because I just don't think the cast is that strong at the moment. The the male cast in particular, they're they're missing some people. Like they're missing a Jason Sudeikis or a Taryn Killam who can do everything. And they're trying to turn Mikey Day into that. Mikey Day, you'll notice again, just watch it, how many times he's the lead in everything. And Mikey Day isn't really a lead type performer. I would almost argue he's more of a Will Forte type. He's almost kind of a niche guy. And it's really weird to me to see him shoehorn into the lead in everything. Would you agree with that? Yeah, it's interesting because I think the assumption we made, especially after Taryn left, was that Beck was going to take that over. And he did to a certain extent. But now it seems like the balance has shifted a bit to your point towards Mikey. I wonder Mm -hmm. if it's something where we have been getting basically a Mikey Day Streeter Seidel piece in every episode this season. Do you think it's just a matter of because more of his pieces are getting accepted, he's sort of being thrown into that lead role? Like the the War of Words is a big one that I'm sure we're going to talk about. That was not only a piece that he wrote before, but a piece he actually brought over from another sketch show. So I wonder if it's just because the pieces that he's working on make it into the prime slots. That's why we're seeing more of him inherently, as opposed to, you know, we've talked about the the good neighbors sketches coming and going over the course of this past season. And that's really, you know, Beck's bread and butter. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's, that's the optimist perspective, that those sketches are so good that, of course, Mikey and Streeter get thrown into the spotlight more. I could go for the negative, for the pessimist perspective and saying, they're the only ones writing good stuff. <laughs> that's that's the pessimist perspective. So, again, it's if the cast was stronger, Mikey would have, I think he'd have a much more comfortable role in the show as one or two little niche sketches every episode as opposed to the lead in everything. Mm. And that's one thing that just jumps out at me. Just watch how often Mikey's the lead. and. I don't really see him as a lead type. I love him. I think he's great, but it's like he's not a Jason Sudeikis. He's not a Taron Killam. He's not one of these guys, the Bill Hader, that are always the straight man, the lead, and everything. So he's out there doing the punchline characters. He's doing the straight man roles. He's doing everything. And so Mikey is really my MVP of the season because he's the one that's even kind of holding it together towards legitimacy. That's how I'd look at it. So before we get into you know some of the overall things that I want to talk about, I want to touch briefly upon the cold opens. I don't want to speak about them too much because uh there were there was a lot of you know trump baldwin stuff uh but i'm gonna put in a a bold prediction for 2019 and i want to see if you follow me along on this one (laughs) at the 2019 primetime emmy awards i'm predicting an emmy award nomination for robert de niro as robert (laughs) Mueller. i kid you not that would be so fitting on the culture of what comedy is in America now that they are rewarding that as the best in American comedy, that Robert De Niro blows every single cold open he's ever in, and he wins an Emmy for it. Well, because, like, he, I mean, he I don't think he appeared in the Claire Foy one from I remember because it was the, the Argentine thing. But in both Jason Momoa and Matt Damon episode, he not only has a cameo, but has, like, a pretty meaty role. He's now appeared in, like, I think half of the cold opens this season we're ge- we're veering into the og trump baldwin territory in terms of number of appearances <laughs> yeah he's had more screen time this season than kyle mooney plus ego ego uh, combined <laughs> yeah it's it's crazy so I, again i would not be surprised if we saw him some which would be completely unwarranted because he's not a good sketch performer i don't understand why they keep putting on this like donkey show of putting this poor man up in front of a camera and having him read cue cards live but i guess they decided like oh this being the parent scene would be funny let's keep him in the mix and now this is sort of like the hand that they're dealt okay so that's your prediction that robert de niro will win an emmy for snl not win i think i think he'll i think he'll be nominated we won't go that far just being nominated is an honor mike bloom Apparently, yes, but I totally think so. I think with how SNL happy uh, the the Emmy committee is, you know, and the fact that the guest actor and guest actress spots are taken up by SNL people every year, understandably so, because hosts put in fantastic work. 
I could see, especially if the Mueller investigation ramps up in the next year, I could absolutely see him getting nominated. <laughs> okay, so that's the our, that's your prediction. Here's my hope. And this might seem a little mean-spirited. In fact, maybe it'll be a lot mean-spirited. I hope someone commits Robert De Niro to an old-age home so he can never appear on SNL again. And if this requires somebody to call in a fake like a report against him and give him like a 5150 mental evaluation status so he's not allowed out in public, if you'd like to do that, it would make SNL so better if he's not allowed on a stage ever again. Yeah, I would say the 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 best by far, and that's it's a low bar to clear, but the best by far he appeared in was in the Jason Momoa cold open when it was uh, Alex as Eric Trump's you know bedtime story when it was just him one on one, the two of them working off of each other. It actually worked pretty well, except for the fact he was staring off into into space. But that's you know again a low bar to clear. Oh, it did not work. How dare you say that worked? The only part of that sketch that worked is when they open the door and he peers out and says, I'm looking at you and there's no verbal interaction whatsoever. That's De Niro's forte where he doesn't have to talk. He's amazing at not talking. All right. So maybe if they turn the the Mueller character into a mute, that's probably the direction they should go in 2019. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, but they're going to put him in a the boy in the bubble, like that John Travolta movie, where you can't hear him. You just see him, but you can't hear anything he says. And that would be the optimal Robert De Niro SNL performance. <laughs> All right. You heard it here first, folks. That's what our hopes are for 2019. I'm sure we'll we'll put some more in there as uh, as you know our pro- podcast commences. Or the gimp suit from Pulp Fiction. Oh, God. <laughs> but I want to start with uh, actually talking about Christmas. Because, I mean, Christmas on SNL has really become a bona fide holiday tradition. Uh, in fact, you know, it basically, much like our culture, celebrates Christmas over the course of three episodes. We have three episodes worth of various Christmas sketches. Before we get into some of the more specifics, what are your thoughts overall on the way, you know, SNL celebrates Christmas between your sweaty balls and your Santa's My Boyfriend and John Malkovich reading Twas the Night Before Christmas? Yeah, I'm trying to think back here because I don't remember, again, i that's my thing, I have not missed an episode of SNL since the 80s, so like the mid-80s, so, but it's hard for me to remember because there wasn't online discussion about it, there weren't all these retrospective clips of SNL. I'm trying to remember if Christmas was that big a deal back in the days when I first started watching the show, and I don't think it was. Like, maybe they'd have one Christmas sketch or two a season, but again, Christmas, I mean, you have to remember not everyone in america celebrates christmas so it seems weird that they just beat it over the head with so many christmas sketches now and it almost seems kind of cynical in a way like they're just trying to find the next big thing that they can put on the christmas retrospective the best of snl christmas then you get all these you know residuals that they keep rerunning your sketch all the time but it's it's just odd to me that it's so season focused now because i don't recall i could be wrong but i don't recall it always being that focused on christmas christmas up until about maybe the mid-2000s yeah, I mean, that's when I really, that's my most formative memory when it comes to SNL, but I can't really remember it either, which is why, like, again, you know, when you're looking at those Christmas retrospectives that they show every year, we do get, you know, some sketches from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, the aforementioned sweaty balls is one of them, but it really does seem like the lion's share of the Christmas clips that we know now comes from the 2000s onward, just because, I guess, by pure volume. But I will say, and I think we're about to get into some specifics here, I think some of the strongest material from these past three episodes were Christmas-related. Somehow, that served as perfect material for them to to craft these sketches off of. Yeah, I mean, it gives them a focus. That's the thing when you're writing these sketches. They could either be these weird, ethereal Kyle Mooney stuff, or, you know, Mikey Day, which is always kind of a template. Oh, something weird happened. What's going on? Or at least with Christmas, it kind of gives them a direction to go. And, like, I don't know if SNL always needs a direction to go, but at least it's not just the dumb Trump stuff over and over again, so it's something new. 
Like if they wanted to do a hundred Hanukkah sketches, I'd be in favor of that too. At least it's something different. So yeah, I think to your point, you're probably right that it's at least gives the show kind of a character at the end of the year, every year. So talk to me about, is there one or two sketches that were Christmas focused in particular that you want to discuss for good or for bad? I liked uh, the back of the tree ornaments one. Mm. And I don't think it was like the best Christmas sketch of all time, but I just liked the performances and the writing in that one. And I will always remember how many technical glitches there were in it as well. But I could kind of look past it in this case because I just love the fact that Matt Damon gets to play his Goodwill hunting character again. <laughs> just for, for, for some reason, I find that so funny that he's still doing that. How do you like them apples? So I just I like some of the jokes in there, like about the Weinstein. I like uh, Cecily with her face melted oh, off. Yeah, yeah. There, there were some really good effects here. And, you know, with live TV, the green screen was malfunctioning a bit, especially when you have not only that, but like Keenan's only supposed to have, I guess, hopefully he's only supposed to be the top half of his body because we didn't see the bottom half whatsoever. There was a lot of like close camera cuts, too, which made things a bit difficult when you're jumping between multiple characters. But, I mean, comedy's in specificity. And I loved how specific these scenes got. Like, not only having Matt Damon play his good his Goodwill Hunting character, but it was for a for your consideration promotional Goodwill Hunting ornament, or the fact that Keenan's ornament says "Greeting from uh, Cleveland," and of course, you know, eighty as Barb the uh, macaroni turd was just it was all really well done, and I love the specifics on each one that it made for just a really fun ensemble piece and as much as we've sort of spoken in previous podcasts about how there aren't really a lot of great ensemble pieces as of late this really felt like one yeah absolutely and again to my point earlier matt damon running the show he was the lead in that sketch so like in the past you'd have keenan as the lead in the sketch but matt damon was kind of lead in this one i mean i guess you could make the argument it was both of them but always impressed that a host can can be that prominent in a sketch like that Let's talk about another one from the Matt Damon episode. I want to talk about Best Christmas Ever, which was a take on actually an episode that you and I covered, Mario, the the Mother's Day episode with Amy Schumer when uh, she did the, I think it was called like The Day You Were Born, which essentially is like, the it's it's the same general device of like, they'll say something nice, cut to when it actually happened and it was horrible. Uh, yeah. Was your Christmas at all comparable to what poor Matt and Cecily underwent? <laughs> it was nothing like that. We went out to the Cheesecake Factory and it was wonderful. But yeah, no, it was, it was, but yeah, you, to your point that that it was, it was the exact clone of the Amy Schumer sketch. And I don't mind exact clones if they're well done. And I love the Schumer one. I love this one. I thought it was great. So how about your, your, uh, wait, do you celebrate Christmas? You don't celebrate no, Christmas. No, I, I do celebrate. I mean, Christmas has become such like a, for some people it's become more cultural than religious. So it's definitely something that I acknowledge and celebrate. And yeah, I mean, I, I agree that while you, you sort of see things coming from a mile away with this of like, they're going to say something happened and that's the opposite. It was still edited really well. I think by far my favorite part was Mikey Day, Cecily's cousin, wearing the the MAGA hat and saying, you're, <laughs> you're racist against whites. And then, uh, you know, Cecily's mother being like, oh, she is. Uh, that that might be my favorite part. Or when uh, Matt Damon was breaking up a fight between his two kids and he's consoling his one child saying, you're not adopted. She's not adopted. Why would you say that? Well, yeah, but that's a joke they kind of stole from the two brothers one. Remember that one? That's true. Maybe Maybe this is like a spiritual sequel to it. <laughs> Yeah, I, I no, I, I thought that was well done. I, I yeah, like you said, you can see the jokes coming, but that's not always a bad thing. If you write a joke and execute it properly, sometimes you do see it coming. That's kind of the point of a joke. Sometimes you want the audience to get there a step before you do. And plus, it does have a bit of like a, a weird heartwarming aspect to as well as 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 cynical as it may be that like at the end of the day even though they went through all this bull crap they still enjoyed the christmas even though now they have to sort of break everything up so it, it, it's one of those like christmas ones that has an oddly happy ending to it despite the fact that there was a lot of farting around quite literally 
Well, yeah, I mean, it's not much different than a Christmas story, the movie, where, you know, horrible things happen to that family. They lose their turkey, all sorts of stuff at the end. But at the end of the day, it's still a Christmas. They celebrated together. So, I mean, it's, it's almost impossible to have a cynical Christmas sketch. They're all going to end fairly sentimentally. And that's one that I fully expect is going to be on all these best of Christmas retrospectives in the future. It's just really well done, I thought. I, I really didn't see a single flaw in that, other than we've seen it before. But, you know, whatever. It's still better than most of the stuff we've seen. <laughs> I want to jump back to the Jason Momoa episode because this Elf on the Shelf sketch, I monumentally enjoyed. And at first, I thought it was just because Jason Momoa was a really fantastic performer in this. I don't know why Scrabby the Elf had to have like a South Brooklyn accent, but like the, his delivery across the board absolutely sold all these lines. But the more I looked back at it, the more I realized there was a lot of really funny writing going on here, too. I understand that, yes, it might be the same joke of, yep, it's the kid masturbates. That's that's the that's the joke. That's what we're going for. And we can't actually say it. But they were able to, like, write actually a really nicely crafted, tight sketch, in my opinion, that uh, acknowledged it really in a really funny way. Yeah, it's arguably the best Christmas masturbation sketch I've ever seen on the show. Yeah, arguably <laughs> there's some up there. I think it's in the Mount Rushmore at least. Yeah, but um, what I do is when I'm preparing for these podcasts, I write down every sketch just so I remember which one's in which episode, and then I circle them if I specifically want to talk about them. This sketch right now, the elf on the shelf, is the one I had the hardest time deciding if I wanted to circle it or not, because you're a little higher on it than I am, and I, I remember liking it at the time. But then when I watched it the second time, I'm like, it was kind of irritating. Like, I didn't like the, the weird synthetic voice they used. It kind of got on my nerves after a while. Even though the writing was, was strong, I don't think that the overall effect was very pleasing to listen to. It was kind of weird. <laughs> well, I mean, does it help by the fact that Jason Momoa pitched up? It still sounds like a normal person. Yeah, no, I like my masturbation talk to be in the King's English, Mike Bloom. That's very true. I don't know. I just I love like the, you know, uh, Melissa goes into her thing and Mike goes into his thing and cuts to Jason Momoa. I want a different kid, Santa. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're going to win me over on this one because this is one. What happens is my daughter's up in college and she misses SNL and she comes home for Christmas and I always save every episode. And so I'm always excited to tell her all the great sketches she, she should see and I'm going to show her. And that was one I said, yeah, we can kind of skip this one. And now I feel bad. Perhaps I maybe I should have shown her that one, although it is maybe a little awkward to watch that with your kid. Well, I think <laughs> but, it's there's, there's a really funny sequence as well where, like, again, it's just so such great timing where he's like, oh, well, tell me what your kid wants for Christmas. A train set, a new soccer ball. I don't want to say. And the music like cuts out at that particular moment and the audience just goes bananas. But by far, the best part of this sketch that really elevated for me was just a small thing. Scrabby, you spelled flashlight wrong. All right, you've won me over. I forgot about that. Too. It was so, and it's it's a thing where when I googled this sketch, like people are actually googling, like what does that mean? And it's just that's those are the best jokes I love. The ones that like, it, like if you get it, my god, I can't believe that got past the censors, but it's just so well done. Yeah, a lot of people were fired from work that next day googling that term. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like turn on the safe search when you look for it. But there's just there's a lot of like crazy stuff in here. Like uh, sometimes he looks at me when he's doing it, and I think he wants me to be a part of it. Uh, <laughs> Then talking about like, oh, when Marshall grows up, he'll, uh, you know, he'll have his own choices. I don't know if Marshall will have anything in the bank by then. It's just Jason Momoa, I think, just sells the raunchiness of it. And maybe it's the helium infused voices sort of uh, give a lighter tone to it. But I was surprised at how much I thoroughly enjoyed the writing behind this the second time around. Okay, you've well, I just walked over and I circled it on my piece of paper. So well done. You've retroactively changed my mind, Marty McFly. You've changed the past here. Good. And then give me my sports almanac. Exactly. But I will say, 
I mean, regardless of whether I liked it as much as you, I do think that was the best live sketch of that episode. In fact, I would say that was the only strong live sketch of that episode. So, yeah, that was clearly the standout. And, and you've officially won me over because I forgot about the flashlight, quote unquote, joke. Well, on that note, then, I feel like the actual one that had the bigger impact in terms of a live sketch from that episode was the Rudolph sketch with Pete ah. Davidson. Yeah, what did you think about that? I just didn't like that one. I, I do not think Pete Davidson is good on SNL. I can't think of one live sketch I've ever really enjoyed him in. And I know everyone, I even wrote in my notes, Pete Davidson Showcase. That was the one they said, oh, that was Pete's greatest moment. I'm like, I don't think, I mean, it was okay. See if you can sell me on this one, because I am not a Pete fan. And I've, I've pretty much come to the point that I really don't want him on SNL anymore. So please sell me on this one, Mike. I think this was the best he's acted, which again is not saying much, but there was something about the well, 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 that it was a nice enough heel turn that it made me laugh. I do feel like we maybe spent a bit too long with him going around to each and every person and basically, you know, uh, best to acting like a big thug, just sort of like saying like, ah, oh, who's the bitch now, bitch. But there were a couple moments that I really enjoyed that were very ridiculous. When it heightened to a, basically it was like a 30 seconds where it just heightened to a ridiculous place. First, when he makes Beck's character suck on his nose. Uh, when he talks about, like, take a suck on this maraschino cherry. And then when Santa comes in, he says, oh, yeah, he bit me. He, he's he's rabid. And then Jason Momoa just says, oh, I knew it would come to this, and just pulls out a gun. Uh, the audience was aghast, and I love when sketches prompt that sort of reaction from them. The fact that they were so almost bought into it that it prompted that reaction. I agree that I liked Elf on the Shelf better than this, but I will say a solid performance from Pete coupled with those genuine moments that have the audiences react that way, makes it a plus in my book. All right, I will go back and watch that one again just for you. I think what happened is I was kind of not into the Claire Foy episode, and I just wasn't into the Jason Momoa episode either, and that was the very last sketch of two uninspired episodes, so maybe I just didn't really give it a chance. But I will watch that one again, because like you, I always like the gasp from the audience, one of my favorite things you can hear on SNL. It's the, the direct opposite of Clapter, where they're clapping to approve of it. The gasp is my favorite. So I, I will give that one a chance. The gasp, sir, if you will. Yeah, exactly. Although, you know what that sketch really needed was De Niro. We needed some De Niro in there. De Niro could have been the gun. <laughs> yes. You said bang. Emmy award winning Robert De Niro. To just wait, just wait. Well, I do want to talk about actually a, another Christmas based thing from the Jason Momoa episode. My God, was there a lot in here? What did you think about the first impression? Uh, he, 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 you can't find me sketch with Beck hiding in the walls. I like that one. That's one of the one rare ones I circled from those two episodes. And I, the first time I watched it, it was pretty good. But the more you watch that one, the more I think you appreciate it. It's just really silly. And the just Jason Momoa, I think, made that one funnier than it probably should have been because his over the top reactions like, hell, yeah, I'm going to find this. guy. Yeah. Or like, what? where is that turd? Yeah. No, I really like that one. I, especially the fact that he was so disappointed his pie didn't hit him and hit the dad <laughs> in the face. Yeah, or I love the you know the pie goes. I'm sorry if I ruined your chances with close to my pie trap. And Melissa's like, you didn't. Uh, <laughs> it's just I like that immediate failure, and I agree. I was not as big on this the first time because this was I think right after the bad uh, Day of the Dork sketch, which we basically had two sketches in a row where Jason Momoa was like punching through walls, and I'm like, <laughs> yeah. is this what we're gonna have him do? But when you watch it sort of on its own, and like you said, just how manic he gets is really fun, but I think what clinches it for me is how creepy and languid things get when they actually find Beck and Jason Momoa gets swayed over because he, they both like to do the quote-unquote that guy. And then it's just this extended 15-second sequence of very handsome, 
Very nice, yes. Very looking down, looking down at the waist and crotch. Very, very handsome. Like it's just it's it's very I would not be surprised if this was a good neighbor thing, even though Kyle wasn't involved, because that to me screams good neighbor. Just it's your your classic Will Forty thing that you constantly acknowledge of something that it starts out not funny, but if you keep going with it, eventually Mm -hmm. it comes around and becomes funny. That's what happened here. But Beck just spent so much time with these various poses and Jason Momoa just kept saying how very handsome he was that eventually I was, I was rolling by the end of it. Yeah. I wish that one had been earlier in the episode. It would have caught more of my attention, I think, because like you said, it was after a slog of like bad sketches. You had the the ghost of Christmas extra, which was just a mess. Then you had the day of the dorks, which I liked the idea behind, but it didn't really go anywhere. But you forgot that Gemma was in there, too, which just absolutely kills the show and drags it to a halt. So you had to sit through those three of a slog before you got to that first impression. So that was part of the problem, I think. Why do they keep her in there? It's, it's It worked once, maybe one and a half times. The Rock is the only person that should do that sketch, in my opinion. It just, <laughs> I yeah, I don't, I don't understand why they, again, in a, in a, an era where we very rarely see recurring characters, the fact that that one has somehow survived the cut is really interesting to me. Yeah, their dedication to that character baffles me. And again, I will say it again, like you think I'm tired of Pete on SNL, wait till you get to my opinion on Cecily. But but yeah, the Gemma is the worst because that it's like anachronistic at this point because this is not an era where they just do one note repeating the same jokes, uh, recurring characters anymore. So I don't even know why she's on the show, this Gemma thing. But yeah, it's that one just the minute that shows up, that character it, it like immediately just kills the show for me. I can't, I, I'm not going to make it through that sketch. I know exactly what it's going to be like. Well, such a, on a couple of things from the Claire Foy episode. One of the rare things I think I that worked in that episode that was Christmas based was the dad Christmas. And it's so interesting. Did you hear about the dad Christmas controversy? I did, but I don't necessarily buy it. See, that's when I hear this, oh, people are outraged about something. I don't always buy that's exactly what's happening. I just always think that's people reporting that people are outraged. Was there an actual controversy? No, I think, yeah, because I don't think, like, it wasn't like the Safe Light sketch from last year where actually Safe Light was like, please remove this. We're not all pedophiles. <laughs> uh, I don't think anyone was particularly offended. I think people were seeing that there was like a, a parents group out there that took some offense with the way things were portrayed. But outside of that, I didn't think there was any general movement. My, another guess is that the copyright of the parody song Last Christmas that AD was singing might have yeah. caused it to get pulled. That makes more sense to me because SNL historically pisses people off. Like I don't, no one should care that people are, that someone's small interest group is complaining about SNL. That's what they do. So I don't buy that some dad group complained and they got that sketch yanked. I do buy that that sketch, that song was very close to last Christmas. So I buy that if that's true. Did you have any thoughts about dad Christmas overall? Um, That's one I did not circle. And I thought about it and it was like, you know, the Claire Foy episode I think was pretty weak. I really only liked the world war one letters in that one. And the dad Christmas is the only other one I thought maybe I wanted to talk about, but I just kind of watched it today and it's got some good stuff in it, but I feel SNL has done that better, just Mm. that kind of joke better. And it's, I just didn't like it. Like, I think it starts strong and then it gets to the part with 80 singing and it's like a spotlight for 80. Like, I think the sketch would have been better not focusing on 80. It almost feels like something she wrote for herself and it should have been written for the people in the sketch, not her. Mm. If, you, if you know what I'm talking about, it's just it was just weird when I watch it now. This is like, oh, this is just an 80 showcase and it shouldn't be because it's not about her. That's that's the way I thought. So I, I I thought they've done stuff like that better. Yeah, it's interesting that I from what I remember, like the first part of it was structured almost like a travel commercial, right? Like travel to luxurious your dad's condo in Florida. 
Yes, on Spirit Airlines. Yeah, and the, again, it's the specifics that make it really yeah. fun. It's clear that like there are at least a couple of writers on that staff who have dealt with a dad Christmas or two and know exactly where to pull from. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, I would say the first half of that was really strong, and then it goes into this weird eighty singing showcase, which doesn't fit the rest of the sketch. It's just it's like a showcase for her to sing. I don't know. I don't know. I it just do it didn't do it for me. How about do you? Did you like it more than I did? Yeah, I mean, I liked the first half like you did. The second half was fine. I think the thing that I liked most about the song was I, I'm from what I'm remembering. Aren't the, don't the lyrics end with something saying something like you thought your mom was a bitch, but actually, you know, she's holding things together a lot more than your dad. So take credit. Yeah, you kind of need rules. So that's that your mom's just not a bitch. So it was like it's that's kind of what SNL does these days. They take a good premise and they kind of get preachy or whiny towards the end. And I noticed that in this one too. Like you might now you don't think your mom's just a bitch, huh? Like it's it's like they it didn't really need to be that harsh at the end. Mm. That's I don't, it's it's just that that whole sketch just struck me as kind of odd. It just it felt more preachy and kind of mean spirited than it needed to be. I want to talk about speaking of singing. Let's talk about the way they ended. The Claire Foyer episode. <laughs> Muller, All I Want for Christmas is You, a song sung by the ladies of SNL. This was one of the ones where I'm definitely looking at my imaginary watch going like, okay, yeah, r- please wrap this up. Because they did the entire song. Like when they went into a second <laughs> verse, I'm like, my God, did they commit to this? And I mean, here's the thing. We hit the coda. Oh my God, we hit the coda. Yeah, exactly. Like we we're hitting the bridge. Like we are really like they found the full track and they they wrote an entire song to it. And look, I think it was a completely admirable effort. I'm happy that they tried to go for like comedic lyrics to it. It wasn't like when they sent Barack Obama off with two sir with love, which felt so tone deaf for a comedy yeah. show. Um, so I admire them for that. But that being said, this was a big miss for me. This was oh, yeah, just, no. this was just, it was not a great, I, I like the energy behind it, but it was not a good way to end the show. Not only that, should I point out that the women of SNL apparently counts only four of the women? Yeah, and especially because, like, <laughs> Melissa is a hell of a good singer. Like, I'm, I'm surprised, maybe it was just because those four had written it initially, and then they brought the other three in, but it was very random. Yeah, don't call it from the women of SNL if not all the women are out there. Then it's just weird. It seems so weird. That was the first thing that jumped to my mind. Like, why, why aren't they all out there? I know there's more than four women on SNL. Yeah, and I, I will also say that, you know, I, when I initially uh, listened to it, I didn't hear a Muller at first. I heard, really, you know, made my wish come true. All I want for Chris. So I missed the big first <laughs> joke of the song, and that did not bode well from the rest of my listening to it. Because once I saw a picture of him, I'm like, okay, this makes sense. But at the same time, if you were not able to deliver the first big joke of your song, that is that's not going to forecast well for the next three and a half minutes. Well, you realize there aren't many jokes in Santa's My Boyfriend either, but they use that in every <laughs> Christmas special. Well, because they don't, yeah, they don't, because they don't have many. Like, I mean, I guess we have "Doing in My Twin Bed" is probably the best Christmas-based song, unless you, because like, I wish it was Christmas today is not funny at all either. It's just Tracy Morgan's dance is probably the funniest part of it. Oh yeah, it's yeah, it's I know this was a big miss, and it just. It's just emblematic of everything that's wrong with these SNL, you know, political sketches. And them just thinking they're like a news organization or like giving like giving opinions more than a comedy show. It's like, what, why is this on this show? This is just a waste of, of time. And yeah, and like they didn't even have all the women out there and it went on forever. It's just, again, just emblematic of a lot of the problems people have with SNL at the moment. Like that's not something I think most eras of SNL would have on the show. It was a little too like a sentiment. I don't even know what the word would be. It was just it was odd. It was also interesting that they put it in the first episode of the three big Christmas focused ones, because you would think you would want to like 
save that one for last. I don't know. Maybe they were just really excited to get it out there. It seemed like they were really excited to, to, you know, debut their work there. But it was, again, to start off our Christmas streak on that was interesting. Yeah, but this also backed into something I've been saying before. SNL seems to have this perspective, and I don't know why they still have this perspective. Every episode they do, it feels like they expect Trump is going to get impeached on Sunday, and they have to get the last jokes in before it happens. Like, they almost, it's almost a given that, oh, he's gone this weekend. We might as well get this joke in now. Like that's, it's almost feels very much. They're very certain something is going to happen with Trump and he's just not going to be president. And they want to make sure they get it in as quick as possible. And then you get these things that drag out longer and longer. Look, you go back and watch some of the stuff from the last two seasons and they're doing the same thing. It's basically like, well, Trump will be gone after this weekend. Don't worry. We can just laugh at him. And it's just, that's the thing with SNL. They just, they seem more certain of things like that than I think the reality is. (laughs) So I want to segue out from the holidays and into I want to talk about some weekend update uh, features that happened. I think like overall, very strong update as per usual. These guys remain the most con- one of the most consistent parts of this SNL season. I do think they're they're doing a really great job. I want to mm-hmm. talk about some of the, the characters that got featured because we got a couple new ones and we got a couple of old ones as well. Do you have any thoughts about Beck as Jules talking about the economy? Yeah, that was a waste of time. <laughs> Are you sure you just are you sure you're just not thinking a little bit differently about it, Mario? No, I'm not. Okay, here's I will give my overall perspective first. Is that I don't consider update characters to be a significant or really important part of the show, and it almost it kind of bothers me a little how prominent they've become to the show in the last 15, 20 years or so. Like because to me, I don't really think it's a really g- great thing that you have a character that can only exist in like a little two minute segment where they only, they're the only person talking. Like to me, it's much more admirable to get a sketch around them or a situation or another character they're bouncing off. So I don't really consider this a big part of the show, these update characters. To me, they're kind of filler. It just drags out update and gives less time for sketches. So unless something's really amazing as an update character, it never really catches my attention. Mm-hmm. And per my past reviews, Heidi, everything Heidi does catches my attention because she just she has a, a level of getting into her character that's different than most people. And it just it just catches my eye. But I've, as I said before, as much as I like Heidi, I'm very wary that her characters can only exist in update in that form. And I'd like to see them branch out more. So I don't really consider the update characters a big part of the show. I wish there was always less of them. And I'm just looking at my list here of the ones that came on. Like Leslie came on and did her little shtick about how she's giving up dating. Beck with his dude. Um, uh, then you had 80 with the teen girl. Like none of those I thought were especially interesting or added much to the show. So I'm probably coming at this from a little different perspective than you are. Yeah, I. I will say the Beck one, I, I liked it in the beginning. I think Beck had a good delivery to it, but it went on for a bit longer. And yeah. I think when the point of your character is to be super annoying, I think it's really tough to get the audience on your side, as we saw from like the uh, Alex's call uh, character, the guy who just bought a boat. Like it's tough to make annoying funny, uh, and I think it's it, they're they're trying to thread that needle, and I give them the effort. All right, it's an admirable effort to do so. Leslie, I this was not one of my favorite appearances from her. I feel like, from what I remember, it was pretty sloppy across yeah. the board. It was forced. It felt forced. Yeah, though the by far the best part was Michael Che doing the uh, Judge Judy off the cuff remark <laughs> and Leslie reaching across Colin to get to him. Like that felt like a nice burst of energy. We were sort of like on autopilot going down the tracks like we usually do with Leslie. Yeah, it felt like she was just screaming at the audience. Like the, the Claire Foy episode in general didn't have much energy. And it almost felt like she was trying to make up for that. She could almost kind of sense this episode was kind of dying. And she was just going as, as hard as she could, just much energy. And it just it just felt not natural. 
Like it was like she was trying to make up for the rest of the show. It just it was yeah, I did that one didn't work for me. And a lot of time Leslie's commentaries do. This one just didn't do much for me. But I do actually really like 80s uh, Carrie Crumb character. Because when I heard Childhood News Correspondent, I was like, okay, we're, we're, we're going to get a return of like Vanessa's, uh, you know, kid character talking about inappropriate things. But I actually thought that 80s character, it had a very limited perspective. Obviously, the, the joke is that like, here's this kid who claims herself to be worldly, but all she can talk about is the sights from, you know, Dubuque and Cleveland. Um, but I think that 80 actually had a really nice like giggly delivery to it. Uh, you know, pulling off lines like, do you know uncles can have ponytails now? Uh, and her lap giggling about Aunt Nancy's bra being on the couch. Uh, so I, I think that there were some really fun things there. And again, the specifics about like, uh, you know, the the best sight she ever saw was once on a flight from Phoenix to Denver. She got stopped at the Atlanta airport and watched two pigeons carry across, carry a bagel together. Uh, I would not be surprised if we see this character back because I think it's a rare time that an 80 character works on update. So considering that some success was glommed onto it, I'm pretty sure we'll see her back at some point. Yeah, I definitely wasn't as high on her as you are. But that in general, 80 doesn't do much for me as a cast member. She really hasn't in a long time. So that would that one was going to be a hard sell for me because I didn't think it was anything especially outstanding. But like you said, there were some good lines in there, but it it was not one that really sat on my radar as anything special. Well, yeah, let, let's get to the Heidi of it all. We've gone so long without talking about Heidi Garner. It seems strange when the two of us talk SNL. Because let's talk about Angel here. Because Angel's in an interesting place where this felt like a great natural progression of the character. I think bringing Matt Damon in there as Tommy was absolutely necessary. And I'm not usually the biggest proponent of, like, you know, bringing in Drunker Uncle. Uh, mm-hmm. Or, like, bringing in these other characters to sit alongside them. But if you're going with someone who is sort of based on a plot, as weird as it is to say about Angel, to bring in the actual boxer that we have heard so much about, I think was a great progression of the character. Yeah, and I'm going to utter a bit of blasphemy here, but I'm really glad they brought in Matt Damon because I think that one was dying. Mm. <laughs> I don't think that character can survive a third appearance. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a good point because, again, it was, it was sort of repeating itself. I think maybe the strongest part was when Angel was directly commentating on the news, like when Michael yeah. Che brought up the uh, Tyler Perry stuff and she has to say with a straight face, like, you know, uh, if you don't wake up on Christmas morning to say hello to my children, because other than that, yeah, it's starting to get a bit repetitive with the taking my kids to my sisters. When Matt Damon came on, it brought this pop of energy. It brought this fantastic nonsensical thing where apparently Tommy knew Angel was pregnant before Angel knew she was pregnant. <laughs> yeah. That was the line that stood out to me. That I like that. And I, I I have to say that we watch SNL here with my wife and kids. And I love Heidi Gardner and I love Angel. But my, my wife and my daughter have turned on Heidi Gardner. They don't like her characters anymore. And that's the thing with Angel. Angel's going to get repetitive. And yeah, I'm really glad Matt Damon was there. And I really hope they don't do her again. Please don't turn Heidi Gardner into Kristen Wiig. That's all I can ask. She has so much potential and she's so different. And please don't let her just do the same thing over and over. She's way too valuable to the show for that. Yeah, I will uh, give the opposite advice that Angel gave to Tommy. Do not go out there and punch that character until you kill her, please. <laughs> yeah. Although, again, if you were to throw Angel into a sketch like a slice of like sketch where she's interacting with other characters and we know her from update. Now we see more of her life. I'm absolutely a hundred percent on board on that, but please just not, I do not think update as a character should be the pinnacle of what someone can do on SNL. I just think that's aiming way too low. Let's talk about some overall highlights and maybe some lowlights from the past three episodes. We mentioned it a couple times. I want to get into the war in words from the Claire Foy <laughs> episode because my God, was this so much fun? This single-handedly, as I said before, like put this above the Steve Carell episode because 
if you're talking about stupidity and you're talking about heightening in comedy, these are the, this this is, encompasses those two examples in the best way that I can remember in quite a long time. Yeah, I would say this is my favorite of these three episodes. That's my favorite sketch. That one is up there for among my favorite sketches of the season. I don't think it will ever top the two brothers. I've now determined the brothers with Kyle and Beck is my favorite just because it's so funny every time you watch it. But the letters one is the most clever. And again, I've heard you you might want to fill people in on the story. They might not know the backstory of the sketch. So Mikey Day before on SNL, he wrote on a b- brief lived variety show called Maya and Marty starring Maya Rudolph and Martin Short. And you can watch it online. It's on NBC.com. It's a very Mikey Day wrote this in a previous iteration. It's a very similar sketch, except instead of World War One, it is the Civil War. And it, it basically uh, involves the same exact thing. It does not involve the same exact jokes. But it involves Mikey Day as someone on the front writing back to his wife. It does sort of utilize the first couple of bits where, you know, the, the soldier writes a letter back to his wife and the wife writes back like a couple words and then sends back the, the letter. And then Mikey sort of turns the page over to realize there's nothing else. But then it sort of goes in different directions. The, uh, the Civil War version has, you know, Maya Rudolph writing an entire story about a, a, a sack of grain and then just casually slips in a picture of herself and Abraham Lincoln. And Mikey's like, what, do you have no, why is there no context? Why do you spend so much time on the grain story? And then Abraham Lincoln writes in, this one, this one goes off the deep end. And I love <laughs> it. I love it that it starts off super daft because it has, you know, uh, James writing in and saying, you know, uh, dear Margaret, please write more. Next time. I, cr- I crave your words. Dear James, will do love Margaret. And then once we get to the, the child picture, I think it takes off an entire different level, which I, excited me to no end. And everything Henry. <laughs> Henry, I, just the the timing and writing of who is Henry? Dear James, Henry is the man in the photograph. Love, Margaret. Like, it's so <laughs> simple and so well done. Okay, first off, I have to share a very unique perspective here. This is probably not something you hear on other uh, podcasts about SNL. And that I don't watch any sketch comedy shows other than SNL. Never watched MTV or Mad TV. Never watched Maya and Marty. I've never seen anything by Jordan Peele. SNL is literally the only sketch comedy show I watch. So, well, I've heard the criticism about this sketch that this sketch, well, it was already, it was from the Maya and Marty show. We've already seen it. It's not interesting. That's not how I look at it because I'm such a little snot. Because literally, this is my opinion. If it hasn't happened on SNL, it doesn't matter. No one cares. When it becomes on SNL, then it's a big deal. So that's my opinion. So this is the first time I saw it. I don't care if it was anything before because my opinion is nobody gives a crap. So so I love that this sketch and I have no interest whatsoever what it was on before. None of that makes any difference to me. And I'll point out there's a precedent to stuff like this before in that many years ago, there was that sketch with Dana Carvey doing the all the, the uh, news notices for Gerald Ford dying in case mm-hmm. Gerald Ford dies. Yeah, That was a sketch he had done before on the Dana Carvey show and they just recycled it and brought it over and nobody bitched about that. So I'm just saying that I don't think it matters that it was on a sketch comedy show before because it only matters when it's on SNL. That's my opinion, and I'm sticking with it, and I love this sketch. Everything about it. Yeah, so that being said, was there anything you sort of took from it while you were sort of in your own bubble watching the sketch? And nothing. I mean, it was that's the kind of sketch. Like, I write my own comedy sketches. I do a lot of comedy writing. That is the exact type of sketch I would like to write. It's right up my alley. That's I love dark weird turns like that i like when it gets just very dark like what the hell is going on she's joined the german army uh i think yeah i think second only to the henry stuff is a p.s how's world war one going and he writes back like why do you call it world war one that is super cryptic (laughs) and that's an old 
I don't know if you, if you grew up when I did in the 80s. That was an old Encyclopedia Brown mystery back in the 80s. Like someone had a, a sword that said World War One. How could you know that this was a fake? And the answer was, well, because nobody knew there'd be a World War Two. They wouldn't have called it World War One. So, yeah, I, I love that joke. And I will say also that this sketch was very, very similar to a sketch that's near and dear to my heart. It's on my SNL Funny 115. Tim Robinson writing Jennifer Lawrence wanting a tit pick. <laughs> yes, I remember that now. <laughs> so I love that trope of people writing soldier, writing their loved ones back at home and asking for inappropriate things. Or, and this was the reverse, where the wife is telling him inappropriate things. So I just love that type of humor. It's my favorite thing on SNL. It's like a, this is like a sketch that would have been on like late night with Conan O'Brien in the 2000s or late 90s. It's just that kind of weird. He loved historical humor like that. So yeah, this to me is one of the five best sketches of the season. Let's talk about a pre-tape from the Jason Momoa episode. Did you have any thoughts about the GE Big Boys commercial? Yeah, that's another one that I circled that I really thought was well done. Like, I remember I read all these reviews. People watch the episode and they point out the stuff they liked. And that one didn't get a lot of attention. I didn't see a lot of people pointing out that one as being especially well done because it was very specific. It's just, you know, uh, appliances for these big brawny guys like uh, like men, like the big manly men appliances. But for what it was, I thought it was really well done. And again, most of the pre-tapes are pretty well done. And I thought that one was very strong. Yeah, I think that it's a fun, like, what we would call an improv, like a mapping game, essentially, of like, if this is true, what else is true? Where, oh, if they're doing these big bulky appliances, yes, the dishwasher would have a 70-pound steel door. The washing machine would be six feet tall. The, a spot remover would be a jackhammer. Um, I think <laughs> it's the visuals compounded with, like, I think Steve actually talked about this in the Saturday Night Live After Party episode proper, talking about this. It's, like, also surprisingly poignant talking about how they outlined how we now live in an age where like there's a lot more you know women being the breadwinners and being the ones in the workforce while the men are staying home and so they're sort of marketing to the idea of like you can still maintain your masculinity while (laughs) while maintaining your household and i think my favorite part was the energy star rating of an f minus because it runs on pure gasoline (laughs) yeah and just something i said earlier that the male cast is especially kind of weak right now you'll notice if you watch the show how female heavy the show is and most of the sketches are based towards female stuff This is one of the rare kind of male-based sketches you actually see on the show these days, and that's why it kind of maybe jumped out at me, because they don't do that a lot. They don't have the male cast that can pull off stuff like this in general. So yeah, I just just thought this was one that was really well done for something so minor and forgettable. Yeah, it's comparable to like the the Beta Force commercial from the Seth Meyers episode, too, just the complete opposite. (laughs) Porno railing your wife. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, And then moving into the Matt Damon episode, so I feel like this, this Weezer sketch that I yeah. want to talk about. A lot of people have compared it to in the Sterling K. Brown episode, the Shrek sketch, where it seems like we are now in this weird subgenre of like people at dinners getting obsessed about very minute pieces of pop culture. Do you think there's any sort of comparison between the two? I mean, how could you not compare it? It's the exact same sketch in the exact same setting. Like it's the like the same set. Of course it was. A, who's not comparing those? Oh no, those are much different. Well, to be fair, this one actually has someone arguing with Matt Damon, whereas Sterling K. Brown had no one arguing with him about Shrek. He was just sort of talking into the wind. Here, Matt Damon's enthusiasm is met by Leslie's lack thereof when it comes to Weezer. Hey, less, all, all credit aside here, Leslie was great in this one. Yes. And I don't always think she's good in sketches. I thought she was fantastic in this one. So, you know, big thumbs up to Leslie. And I don't know a thing about Weezer. I, I know they did Buddy Holly. That's about the only extent that I know that Weezer exists. Even so, I love this sketch just because I know whoever wrote it, they put their heart into it and they believed in it. And I love that kind of sketch. And I love passion. 
on SNL. Like the performers were just screaming in anger. Like I know the writers who wrote the sketch were probably actually debating the stuff themselves and they probably somehow conveyed it into the sketch. So I just loved it. And again, I, I didn't even get any of the jokes and I still loved it. That's yeah. what, that's how good it was. Yeah. That, that's a testament that like someone who is not as familiar with the Weezer verse, you know, would be able to really enjoy it. And it's, I completely agree. It's because of the delivery. The specifics there are fun, but it's with, not without the, the passion and just the pure screaming match that ensues that make and that's why leslie really worked for this and i am so pleasantly surprised that like she may have committed this to memory or maybe she's become better at reading the cards but like this might have been my favorite sketch that she's ever been in uh because she just was so smooth that she had fantastic energy just laughing in his face i'm sorry but you're dumb and then you i love matt damon's like nonsensical insults the no offense but burn in hell uh, or like, uh, no offense, Tammy, but drink my blood might be my favorite. <laughs> I gotta say my, my, I've been trying to show these uh, sketches to my daughter. She's up in college and sh- this is one she happened to watch. She happened to catch this up in college and it stuck with her and she doesn't know she's 18. She doesn't know anything about Weezer either, but she came home and we caught her at the airport and I, we were always taking digs at each other. It's what our family does. We kind of make fun of each other. And she literally said that she's like, no offense, but burn in hell. <laughs> so she reeled off the, the Weezer sketch right off the top of her head because it stuck with her. So that's a testament when you're remembering these weird little nonsensical insults and turning around and using them against your dear beloved father. I don't know. I can't wait for, I don't know, somebody to get into a bait about like the IMDb of John Leguizamo in January <laughs> when they revisit the sketch. I don't care. They they could do this every episode, just as long as it's a nonsensical topic and someone actually researched it and believes in the argument. I would love to see the arguments they come up with. I think it's fantastic. It's so much better than most of the stuff they do on SNL these days. It's interesting. And for what it's worth, Weezer loved it. Like they because they're like, oh my god, we're being mentioned again. And they they you know took it in stride. Even the insults against them that Leslie was putting out. Well, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It was someone arguing for the other part of their careers better. So even though you're insulting Weezer, it's just there's a better version of Weezer. So I don't know why they would dislike it. Yeah, just love that one. Big fan. I've watched it several times. It was very good sketch. Did you have any other things you wanted to talk about for good or for bad from these three episodes? Okay, I will just go down these uh, these my list of sketches here and see if anything pops out. Um, the Claire Foy episode. I really only like the World War One letters. Dad Christmas. I could maybe do with that was good, but that was. I didn't like the second half, but I really didn't like that episode. I just thought it was just sloppy and uninspired. And I noticed we didn't talk about the Willy Wonka sex romp sketch. Well, I mean, it's so weird that like between this and I believe, was it the Kristen Stewart episode? There was a Willy Wonka. I don't know why Willy Wonka for some reason is a bastion of sketch stuff. And I think that, I think there was some funny stuff in there, but I mean, like there was some timing that was off. I know Kate's eyes were like glued to the cue cards. And I think she was laughing just because uh, Kyle behind his turtle glasses and 80 just sort of like moaning and groaning uh, and poor Heidi just for the sake of her comedy, banging her head against a wooden headboard. <laughs> it just, it seemed a bit sloppy overall to your point earlier. Yeah. I wouldn't even say a bit sloppy. That was just a mess. Like all the blocking was off in that sketch. The angles were off. The performers were looking at the right cameras. It was just, and that's something I, I keep saying, like, why is this season so sloppy? And again, I, I always bring up, I usually watch the West Coast feed. This is like the first time in my life I've ever watched the East Coast feed, so I actually mm-hmm. see it live. So maybe it's always been the sloppy, and I've never noticed it. I'm used to seeing the fixed version, so I, I can't speak to that. But it just, this one was especially emblematic of what a mess. And I don't even think it was that bad an idea. You could have pulled off that sketch if it had just been a little more competently done. Yeah, and like, I wonder if it had gone other places, because like, once it started happening, I think it was, it was a funny moment once Kyle and AD started kissing. But then like outside of banging against the walls, what else was going to happen? 
you know yeah. it, it, it was basically just a bunch of shots of like pete and heidi thrashing in bed because you can't exactly show that even at like one o'clock in the morning yeah all you have is grandpa george porno railing grandma georgine <laughs> yeah he must have had his beta force and his wonka bar <laughs> Yes. All right. So, yeah, the Claire Foy episode, nothing especially special. Um, even though we talked about the strong stuff in the Jason Momoa episode, I thought there was a lot of really weak stuff in there. And I just want to point out that uh, Ghost Dojo sketch that just went on forever. I will. And I will say, I think this was talked about actually on the Live from New York subreddit that for some reason, with all of their pop culture sketches that are based on like TV or movies, they tend to go super generic with the references. For some reason, though, with Game of Thrones, they go super duper specific and it still doesn't work, in my opinion. <laughs> and it, it stinks because like Jason Momoa was called Drogo in season one of Game of Thrones. Spoiler alert for Game of Thrones. He dies in season one. So it's really weird to sort of, uh, you know, bring that up seven years after the fact. But I guess you have to. But it was just sort of like. I think they talked about this, John and Steve, on the podcast, that it felt like they, the writers felt like they had to do a Game of Thrones podcast because Jason Momoa is on it, but it really did not come out well. And there was a lot of really off cues. I think there was a lot of delays between like Jason's grunts and Keenan responding. It just, mm-hmm. it, it did not work out whatsoever, in my opinion. That might have been one of the worst sketches of those three episodes. Yeah, and I think this Momoa episode was especially weak right through the middle. That's why I'm kind of surprised you're so high on it. Just because there's a there's like 45 minutes where nothing's going on in that episode. Although, it really depends on how you feel about Them Trumps. Now, yeah. I didn't thoroughly think Them Trumps worked for me that well. I thought it was neat and well done, but I didn't think it was all that funny. Were you a fan of that one? So I rewatched it. I wasn't as huge of a fan in the beginning, but I think what I really like about it is the surprise. It's very rare on SNL that we get short sketches, especially pre-taped. The fact that this comes in at like two minutes and that the humor comes from the fact that he goes on this big monologue and says they can't arrest me even though i'm black cut to him being arrested i think is a (laughs) i think it's a funny thing i don't know if we needed the coda of him coming back and then being impeached i feel like just ending on that it's like the dyke and fats basically of like have all this lead up have a quick resolution and that's what makes for a successful sketch in my opinion okay yeah if, if you like that sketch if that one works for you the momoa episode is actually fairly decent in the middle if you don't like that sketch it's just a slog so that's why i said i'm a little more surprised you're so high on that episode but okay now we go to the matt damon one and i'm just going to talk about matt damon episode from here on out the monologue that was so good oh. that was like it wasn't even funny it was just sentimental and sweet and like it was heartfelt and i just loved it it was like you were transfixed by that story and that's the thing it doesn't have to make you laugh you don't have to be laughing every minute but you have to be invested in whatever they're doing on the stage that's kind of the snl thing and i was so invested in matt's story and i just thought it was very you know warm and just just make y'all fuzzy it was just a nice story and he doesn't he does have a nice little crack at the end when he you know he says and then i talked to my own daughter and saying you know uh i'm you know uh who i'm there you want to watch snl who's the host i am who's the musical (laughs) guest (laughs) Well, what's funny is I would just tell a personal story that my kids are like that too. Like they follow these people on the internet. My daughter's like, oh, this person posts memes on Instagram. They're amazing. They're really funny. They follow, she follows this Instagram channel. And my son follows people on YouTube to play video games and Star Wars and stuff. And so they're like, yeah, there's these YouTube celebrities and they're on the internet and they're so cool. And I'll be like, you know, I write about pop culture and I write books and I have like a, like 4 million readers. And they're like, yeah, but nobody cares about that. Dad. That's Survivor. No one cares about your crap. So I, I feel Matt Damon's pain when you cannot impress your kids. Yeah, but it, I feel like to your point, it was very genuine. And, you know, around the holidays, I think, again, as we were talking about with like the, uh, you know, the the surprising heartwarming aspects of some of these Christmas sketches, like those emotions come about with the holidays and it was cool to yeah. see 
with Matt Damon not promoting something and with so without having to like tie his thing back into, you know, something he's promoting, like you might do with Jason Momoa in the Aqua Boogie, very segmented monologue that came out. It honestly was just him sort of coming out and talking about SNL and how important it was to him. And he did have some time in between where like he had some material to work with as well. It didn't feel trite. So yeah, this was, it was so simple, but it was so well done. And this maybe is a note that hopefully people, the, you know, uh, producers should take of like, monologues don't need to be complicated again compare this one with the jason momoa one which essentially was like three different concepts in one it's like night and day yeah i don't think that was even written matt damon could have just been speaking extemporaneously for all we know it's like that could have been a story off the top of his head so that's one of those things i hope gets put into these best of christmas specials because it's absolutely appropriate for this christmas show they seem to do every year now so yeah that's one i really hope that people realize was special Mm -hmm. i agree Okay, so finishing the Matt Damon, I love the Westminster Daddy Show. Oh, I forgot to bring that up. I l- <laughs> basically the the thing that made it for me by far was Matt Damon's prancing around when he found out he won. That yeah. I think signed me on board as to like, okay, this is going to be a good episode. I mean, you know that that early on, it, it's a good yeah. feeling. Right off the bat, just this silly little slapstick humor, and Matt Damon looks like he's having so much fun. And my wife just loved that sketch. We, we, she goes, "Let's watch that one again." We we rounded, watched it again, and she still loves it. She's like, "He's so cute. He's so happy. He's just prancing." But he he won the prize. Like, so yeah, the Westminster Daddy Show was well done. Um, uh, let's go up to the Oscar host auditions, and I don't have a whole lot to say about that other than I thought it was kind of weak for what it could have been. And here's something that just baffling to me: you have Melissa on the show who was one of the best impressionists out there nowadays and she's only featured in one bit on that sketch like why is she not doing 10 impressions that's crazy like matt damon can does two and she only does one the the most time we've gotten her doing impressions was that like a zooopolis sketch with octavia spencer back in the day when it was just like hey we'll cycle between a few people doing impressions in one room basically and yeah, yeah it, this would be crazy because this is you think this is melissa's time to shine but for some reason they only maybe it's because they want to keep it short and that basically everyone else only did like one impression except for Matt Damon. I will say maybe it's because we haven't seen this in quite a while that I was welcome to see this sort of like grab bag of celebrity impressions. Or maybe it's just because they were overall pretty good on the whole. Yeah, see, I was going to say I didn't think there were very many standouts in that. It just felt like rote. They're just doing an impression sketch like they, because they had to. And I didn't think much stood out. And I'm just thinking, do they have that little faith in Melissa that they're not giving her every single sketch in that imprint? Like, that's what she does, and they're still not giving her airtime. So I just, I just, it feels like they do not have much faith in Melissa. That's the thing. That's because that's what she does. Yeah, though I will say a couple of highlights. Um, I don't, I do not know if you've seen Nanette, the the comedy special of Mario, but 80s impression of uh, Hannah Goldsby, Hannah Gadsby, the uh, comedian behind that is spot on and fantastic. And I will say, uh, the the one thing that I was really happy about with the sketch is when it ends with Ellen, Kate as Ellen, and yeah. she's because again there's a lot of controversy around Kevin Hart. I was a little disappointed that none of the other hosts sort of made reference to the controversy behind that, except for Ellen, who says, you know, hey, you know, people don't mind, uh, people don't mind me being gay and hosting, except for the guy that was supposed to host this thing. So I just thought, <laughs> I thought that I wish we had sort of had more of that sort of bite tied into all these comedic impressions but that might be asking too much yeah no i agree all right two more things just two more uh the jingle bell song between cecily and matt this is one i have seen people really really liked and what's funny with me is see i'm not the biggest cecily fan in the world 
and I, I keep saying that, but like to me, that sketch absolutely just dragged and just derailed the show for a good five minutes. It just felt like it went on too long, and it was again just Cecily doing her shtick out there. I don't know. That was one that just did not work for me. And to me, that's the only miss in the Matt Damon episode for the most part until the end. But I've seen other people say that was the highlight of the episode and they loved it. They're like, it was like the Sweeney sisters. It was great. And I'm like, I didn't like the Sweeney sisters either. (laughs) So what's your stance on that? Yeah. So that's a big if it's like, if you enjoy that things, I actually believe from the research I did that her take is based on an actual Barbara Streisand cover of Mm. Jingle Bells, which is that insane. And I don't know if that makes me like it more or less that it wasn't necessarily an original. Because if it's an homage, that can kind of excuse maybe the lack of creativity that comes to it. But it also means that like it's not as maybe inherently frenetic. I do agree it dragged on a bit. It's sort of like the uh, the All I Want for Christmas is You Mueller song, where mm-hmm. like it just kept going. For some reason, I thought we were going to keep changing things up. And I think that by far, I guess the best part was sort of the repartee between Cecily and Matt Damon, even though that was very sparse. Yeah, it was well done, but I will fully fess up to the fact that, you know, when Cecily gets out there as a lead in a sketch, I almost always know I'm going to hate it these days. And I hate to say that, but that's kind of, I think she's just been on the show too long for me. I'm just kind of tired of her. And that was one that just immediately I turned off. I mean, I just tuned out the moment it started. I'm like, I just can't handle this one right now. (laughs) And then you have one more you said? One more, because we have neglected to talk about the hardest I have laughed at SNL this entire season, Mike. What's that? This is when Colin and Shay did each other's jokes on Weekend Update. Yes. I mean, so we, we mentioned it briefly, but this is um, this is something that has been done a couple times. I believe they have done it at the end of the season and in the middle of the season. But for those of you that might not remember, we ended Weekend Update on the Matt Damon episode with Colin and Michael saying, okay, we wrote some jokes for each other to read, and this might have been, from my memory, the best iteration that they've done of it. Yeah, I have not laughed that hard at SNL this season, and probably in a while, especially the minute we got to uppity bus passenger Yes, day. specifically with the prelude of, I'm, uh, I'm speaking off the cuff here, this is not Che, this is all me. <laughs> that was so good. I mean, that was so edgy and like snl just walking that line of good taste and i I love when they do stuff like that and they were having so much fun and i know they probably did these jokes in dress rehearsal so it wasn't the first time they saw them but still that was an snl moment that is the hardest i've laughed at snl in quite some time and i just loved it i just want to thank those two guys for doing that on snl because those guys are really like i said mikey day and those two colin and michael are really holding the show together right now and still making me want to watch it every week even though i don't think this this season is very strong but those guys are doing great i was a little fearful that michael would have put one of his four uses of the n-word in the (laughs) cue cards for colin but i'm glad he didn't go that far yeah i mean it's it's gonna pale in comparison to what uh you know colin i'm emphasis on pale sends to michael because michael is obviously wants colin to sound like a big bigot which he was he was able to do so with you so you see even nigerians can't tell black people apart which really was like the beginning of that of just the insanity that was about to ensue fantastic again nothing bad to say about that and i really hope snl just pushes that envelope more like that because that is so good all right well let's let's sort of i guess wrap up like a nice present uh Mm -hmm. the first half or the first nine episodes of season 44 do you have anything on your wish list or general thoughts that you want the show to sort of undertake as they embark on a new year yeah let me let me do a a sports analogy here i don't know what our crossover with these sports fans is out there but I've been a Seattle Mariners fan my entire life, and they are the least relevant, least interesting team that has ever been in baseball. They, there's no hope if you're a Mariners fan. They're not going to be good. So if you've been through 
Seattle Mariners seasons where the team is not going to win. They're not good. There's two ways you can go in a season like that because it's not going to be interesting. And that's kind of what SNL, SNL is going to be a weak season this year. That's just all there is to it. When you have a weak season going on, you can either play the old veterans who you know are not interesting. I've seen these players for seven, eight years. I know what they can do. I'm not really that interested in them being in a season that's not strong. Or you can play the rookies. That's my thing with baseball. Like if the team's going to be uninteresting, at least give us new players to be uninteresting. I'd like to see these kids get a chance and do new stuff. So that's my wish for SNL. I think we're in a sub 500 season here. It's not going to be strong. Why don't we play the rookies? I'm kind of tired. I don't need to see Cecily and 80 and everything and, and uh, Leslie and Keenan. Like, let's start giving these new people a chance. I want to see Melissa. I want to see Heidi, of course. I would love to see way more Kyle Mooney, but I, it's, you got to develop these young talents that are going to be the future of the show because I, these, some of these old people have been there quite a while now. It just, this, this cast is stuck there for a while and it feels kind of stale to me. So that is my wish is that we've established it's not going to be an especially strong season. Let's play the kids out there and see how they do. My advice to SNL would be get weird. I think that some of the best sketches of these first nine episodes, House Hunters, the War and Words, the uh, the Career Day sketches, all sort of live in this realm of absurdity that really work. And you know, you always take a big swing when you do that, but I feel like they are connecting with a lot more pitches than they probably initially think. So mm-hmm. my hope is that we do less Gemma. And we do more of those types of things, these one-off, absolutely bananas ideas. And yes, you might miss sometimes, but sometimes you end up doing some really insane things. And frankly, in a time that's becoming increasingly harder to do comedy commentary on the political scene, mm-hmm. if you're looking for more of a a, a, a load to sort of uh, attach yourself to and move forward with, I would rather have that than something that, as you mentioned before, is a point that they've sort of been hammering home the past two years, and it looks like they're going to keep hammering home. Yeah, it's and what's weird is they'll have those episodes where the bizarre sketches show up, and they work, and they're great. And you think the show will learn something from that, and then the next week it's right back to the same old tropes. I'm like, don't you guys learn the lesson? And maybe they're being rewarded. That's the thing. There's a lot of stuff on the show I don't think is that good that gets rewarded for. Oh, it was a, it was viral. It was a big viral video. Oh, De Niro's appearance was great. Like. Stop rewarding them for that stuff. Like this, this weird, you know, cerebral, odd comedy that those are the ones that are going to stand up over the years and really make these seasons worth rewatching. Nobody's going to watch a Trump sketch in 10 years. No one's going to care. Yeah. So, yeah, that's why I would agree with you. Like, just have faith in the weird stuff that will work. Maybe it won't. Maybe it will. But at least it'll be interesting. We can only dream. And hopefully uh, I'm excited for more SNL, no matter what, what it may be coming back in 2019. I believe it's coming back January 19th. I want to say we have yet to have a host in there but i think we're doing two episodes in january and then i think we might be doing like three a month through may mm. so we have we have plenty more snl after party to talk through uh the two of us as well but i gotta say i've, I've been really loving doing these month in review podcasts as well it's been a really interesting way to sort of look at the season of a few episodes at a time and i can't believe we've only done three because it feels <laughs> like there's just been a lot to talk about yeah, we're like an old married couple at this point. Mike and I know each other, oh, no. all our beats and stuff, and I know what he's going to say. He knows what I'm going to say. Hopefully not George and Georgina. <laughs> yes, we're sitting here eating the kern. Like, we know each other. We're just breaking bread together. But yeah, the uh, that's what we hope with these episodes. We hope we give you a perspective you're not going to hear from any other podcast. But that's nothing against anybody else, but that's we have to give you a reason to listen to us. If we're just recapping the episode. Anybody does that. I'm sure they probably do it better than we do. So I hope we give you something to think about or a different perspective or maybe just a different lens with which to view some of these SNL things and maybe think about the show a little differently. 
if we're not doing that, let us know. If we are doing that, please let us know because that's why we do this because we think we can add something of value to the community and we hope we're interesting to listen to. So you can always let us know on social media, specifically on Twitter. Mario is at Mario J. Lanza. I am at a Mike Bloom type. You can also, uh, if you're interested in catching up with Mario's uh, Survivor-related content, I know you do have a Patreon, correct? <laughs> yeah, I have a Patreon, and I and I love my patrons because you guys help keep my website alive. I have a Survivor website called Funny115.com, and it is ginormous. It has so many pictures and moving GIF files and everything, and it takes... It costs so much money for me to keep that online, and so I need my patrons to kind of help me pay for uh, for, for host hosting costs. Because I almost had to shut it down last year when all of a sudden my uh, my hosts said, "You know, you're using so much bandwidth that you need like a dedicated server just to this because you're shutting down everybody else." So, yeah, Patron.com/slash Mario Lanza. That's my page. It's basically for Survivor for my. Uh, uh, SNL stuff uh, for my other podcast staff picks. That's really the one, the one place that I really ask for help uh, with all my websites and stuff. Because everything I do is free. I don't have anything that's paid content anywhere. Everything I do is free, and I just need help to keep it online so I don't have to like shell out hundreds of bucks a month to get these things up. So feel free to check all that out. We'll have a little while uh, before we come back. It looks like around the end of January with a couple of episodes to recap. I know that this is technically coming out on January first. I believe if my schedule is correct, but with the holidays and everything, it was a little tough to get everything together. So I hope you enjoyed a look back on December 2018 in general and uh, the, the first nine episodes of SNL 44. Of course, John and Steve will be back on Saturday Night Live after party proper to talk through whatever the January 19th episode will be. And we'll be back at the end of the month to recap it all. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you so much to John and Steve for bringing us on board. This was a lot of fun to do to sort of transition our own format into something that lets us gab about SNL for hours at a time. And I'm having a lot of fun doing it. I'm looking forward to what 2019 will bring. That's going to do it for this month in review for Saturday Night Live After Party. Thank you all so much for listening. Hope you all had a happy new year. And we'll talk to you at the end of January. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.